welcome everyone to the inaugural episode of the Country House podcast. And as a way to get things kicked off, uh, let's introduce ourselves. I'll start with myself. I'm Ben Hancock. I'm a Country House enthusiast, you would say. I'm uh, no way as qualified as these other two chaps to talk about country houses, but I do love them and have a passion for them. And uh, that started for me. I, I worked with the world-renowned country house painter Jonathan Miles Lee and until the day of his passing, and he instilled in me a great love and respect and admiration for country houses. And so I see this in a way for myself as carrying on that legacy that was his and is so important. And uh, you'll get to know me more as we go on, but uh, Connor and Jeff, who, who wants to go first in introducing yourself? Um, I'm Connor Lynch. I am also a country house enthusiast, and I'm looking at country houses from an architectural viewpoint. So restoration and design of new houses, but also the ancillary buildings, outbuildings, follies, gate lodges, everything architectural you can think of on an estate. And I've had a passion for country houses since a very young age. Why did you have that passion? What brought about that initial passion? Well, I suppose from a young age, from a time I can't remember, being in country houses um, on old estates, surrounded by beautiful old oak and chestnut, and um, and then the houses themselves had so much character, unlike any other house, that they are family homes, and you can feel that in the architecture. But we can talk about that after we've heard um, Jeff's introduction. Yeah, and Jeff, Jeff Heath-Taylor. Yeah, thanks, Connor and, and Ben. Uh, my name is Jeffrey Heath Taylor. I'm an architecture historian um, and writer. I um, I'm also a country house enthusiast, as I like both of you. I um, I I um, worked for Country Life magazine for a couple of years, um, uh, writing about architectural history and country houses. Um, I've subsequently been a freelance contributor for a number of publications, writing about country houses and their collections, their architecture, their interiors. Um, I would say. For me, my 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 love of country houses. I don't quite know where I got it from. It's it was instilled in me from a very young age, uh, not necessarily by my parents. We'd visit the occasional country house, but tend to, to just go into the garden. I was always obsessed with the house. Uh, my parents loved the gardens. Um, I think I was born with this with this strange love of country houses. I remember when I was about six years old, etching onto the underside of my family dining table my dream country house, and getting in lots of trouble from my parents for doing so. Um, and indeed, even when I was sort of eight or nine, I was spending my pocket money on Country Life magazine, where most of my friends were buying the Beano and sweets, just because I love the architectural pages. So, um, yeah, it's a funny one. Uh, I, it was definitely something I was born with, not 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 learnt. Um, but yeah, I'm, I, I greatly love all aspects of the country house, from the architecture and the interiors and the collections, through to their role in society uh, and particularly village life. Yeah, uh, that's a topic that we'll definitely delve into. And I'm excited about learning more with the the social side of country houses. But there aren't there aren't many country house podcasts out there. In fact, specifically, not really any majorly at all. And so that might beg the question from some people who are tuning in of why is there a need to talk about country houses? Uh, why are they important? I wonder... Connor, if you could shed some light on that. 
Well, I suppose country houses, unlike towns and cities, which are forever changing, country houses can um, be a foot in uh, a deeper past, but also if the family who built the house many hundreds of years ago are still there, the architecture has adapted and changed with the family's adaption and, and changing throughout the, the centuries. So a country house offers you a look into the past that a town and city cannot offer, I think. Mm-hmm. And are they, would you say that they are still relevant in today's society or? I think absolutely. And the fact that so many were demolished in the 20th century, they're even more relevant and more important now because we have less in this century than we did at the beginning of the last century. And um, they, you, you can't build a new old house. There are new country houses built, but of those that are old and still um, live on, I think they are very important. And the crowds of people who flock to those that are, say, National Trust or Historic House Association, um, it shows you they are as popular as ever. And with Downton Abbey and many uh, country house films, they form part of the backdrop to our popular culture. What do what do you think people? Well, either I know Jeff, you know a lot of English country house owners. What do people misunderstand about modern country house living? That's a good question, Ben. I think um, I think that the hardest thing is the politics of envy and people who see. Um, you see country house owners as, as people of great privilege who aren't in touch with society in, in general. And actually, from my experience, especially um, especially the country house owners who have been in their homes for, for centuries, who have uh, looked after them, they see themselves as stewards and custodians, not as not as as owners. And more than that, they. The role that country house owners played in, in village life was such that they you know, the, the, the concept of noblesse oblige has, has been somewhat um, diluted in recent years, but they had a, had a real sense of, or, and most country house owners I know still have, a real sense of, um, of, of yeah, of stewardship, of, um, of uh, looking out for those less fortunate than themselves. You know, a lot of these families, they're not wealthy. They're, they're asset rich and cash poor. A lot of them have buckets in their drawing rooms and flaking windowsills and all sorts of other things. Yet they will open their house up for village events, for community events, I've never, or I've rarely met a country house owner who's not, who doesn't understand um, poverty in a way that a lot of city dwelling, um, I dare I say it, sort of um, city dwelling uh, middle classes don't, because although they don't, they don't see um, or they don't uh, engage with um, uh, people in the same same way. I guess what I'm trying to say is they, you know. The, the role of the role of of the sort of squire in a country house is that he listens to the concerns of all the people around him so he will he will hear the the, the plights of villages in his community um who are who are who are struggling to get by you know i, I think of houses i know where they own villages and they give vastly um discounted rent uh and and uh, and leases to to families who can't afford to pay the market rents and and that's something which which modern day landlords don't get. Modern day landlords are sort of about quick profit. And I think that's the that's the key thing. I, I I suppose is the long term approach that country house owners have. If you've owned a country house 
for 500 years, you're, you're stewarding it for the next 500 years. So you want the right people, um, the people who, who on your estate, rather than just the people who will pay the most, you want the, you want a mix of people as well. And so, so I think the country house owners, um, role in society is, is more important now than ever, because it's a concept of, of community and giving. And, and it's really interesting. The number of country house owners I know who, who, um, yeah, who take a much longer term perspective on things like the economy and politics. Um, you know, it's interesting that so many country house owners and indeed landowners took a, took a very different perspective to cities over a number of big political issues in recent years, because they're thinking in terms of centuries, not decades or years. And that's something which which we're very fortunate um, to, to engage with people like that, you know, who who are thinking in in, in terms of that. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's the main thing that I think country house owners have is is a long term perspective that transcends the um, the sort of peaks and troughs of the present day. And it's very hard for for us, I think, to to to, to grasp that because we think, especially people our sort of age in our sort of um, circles will often engage with um, what we'll, we'll often thinks in terms of that, you know, the, the next quick profit, the next salary, the next election, the next whatever. And, and actually country house owners can, can take a much longer term perspective, which, which is something we can all learn from. And uh, just following on from what Jeff has said that when the family have been on that particular estate for many centuries, um, the tenants and those who work on the estate or live in the village may have also been there for many generations and you will find the the farmer the gamekeeper is fifth sixth seventh generation gamekeeper farmer whatever it might be and with an ancestral land as such there is a, a sense of duty then to um the maintenance the upkeep and the passing on to the next generation um, to give as you have received. And um, I think that bears strongly on the the behaviour towards looking after the estate and the house, that there is this sense of responsibility to those that have come before and those that will inherit the, the property. I think that's a, a really good point about the stewardship. And, and it seems to as you were alluding to, Jeff, as well, this, the community side of it, there seems to be a track record as far back as you look in history as they've existed, that there is a an outpouring of community and giving in the country house world. Even looking at, as you both know, faith is very important to me and I, I'm quite a religious man and I admire how even back in the 1500s when Elizabeth I was on the throne and how the how the Catholics struggled to have masses and many of those masses had to be, well, their only option to actually hear mass was to visit the homes of nobility and gentry and go into the chapels that were built and maintained by the estate. And those were the people who had influence enough where Elizabeth I would sort of allow them was content for them to practice Catholicism, but other people in the community couldn't. And so you, you wonder what the landscape of our society would be today, not just in faith, but in so many other aspects, if it weren't for that community sense of responsibility and sense of stewardship that came from those, um, those estates, which seems the antithesis to what people look at it from on a surface point level of, 
oh, it must be full of greed. It must be full of profit, as you said, and power. Yeah, and I think also um, you're right. I mean, society has changed a lot. It's interesting you touched on the religious aspect. Of course, that was hugely tied up with, of course, the fact that parish church, every every parish tended, tends to have or tended to have a country house and a squire uh, as well as a village church. And, 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 the, and the, you know, I, 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 it's so, it's so sad to think now with the, with the decline in, uh, in church going in this country, that was, that was a wonderful place where yes, okay. The, the squire might've sat on in his own, you know, special pew or something like that, but it was a place where everyone was, was leveled. It was a great leveler in society because, whether you were, you know, a duke or a marquis sitting on the front row or, or you know, the coal miner's son sitting on the back row, you're all in the same room under, um, you know, under God. Um, you know, I, I think back to, um, I know it's a slight tangent, but that wonderful quote um, that Queen Victoria famously said when she met Charles Spurgeon, uh, the great uh, reformed um, pastor in the in the 19th century. And and Charles Spurgeon had talked to her about the rapture and the return of Christ. And Queen Victoria said, um, I so wish, um, Mr. Spurgeon, that, that Christ would return in my lifetime. And, 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 and Spurgeon goes, why is that? And she says, so I can lay the crown of Britain and the empire at his feet. And it's that sense of that sense of religion being tied in with, um, with society and with uh, country houses, especially, and, and the class system that, it, that, that actually... Um, Again, it's going back to stewardship and noblesse oblige that are that actually people who are born into privilege have a duty to to support those less fortunate than themselves, and and that's something that's 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 changing in a lot of areas, a lot of areas of society. You know, we're becoming a far more self centered society and individualistic society. But if you go to rural estates and country houses, you see a a a, gl- a glimmer of sort of hope that, that there are still people out there who who take that sense of duty and corporate responsibility seriously. As a fruit of that, have you have any of you ever read the very niche poetry genre of country house poetry? Please oh, share patron, your favourite poem. Patron's poetry. I just think, continuing on stewardship, it shows what... We think that there was a huge divide between people in the community and the country house. But you read country house poetry, and it's essential. It's these long uh, poems. I think I can't remember the name of the earliest one. It, it's sort of they always have the name. I'll I'll send it to you, and people listening, just look up country house poetry, and you'll see. But it is always an ode to the patron, because the patron was so generous, and we don't talk about this. Um, but the patron was so generous and so giving in the community. Um, that when a patron passed away or a country house was out of use, you'd have these long winding odes to them. And it's amazing in the describe the beauty of the gardens and relating them to the generosity of the patron and you know, describing the patron's dogs or whatever. It's, it's a really beautiful genre, but it goes back to that real view of such how important that role of the country house was in the community i mean chatsworth at one point hired 40 staff for the house including two full-time window cleaners so you you see just how intertwined they were i'll send you both it's probably worth, it's probably worth caveating what you just said of course ben by saying that of course 
you know there are there are stories of 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 landowners and 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 uh, and squires who 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 weren't quite so magnanimous um connor probably can tell us better stories because in ireland you know for every landlord who who treated his um his uh the people who worked for him with with disdain for example during the irish potato famine there was other there were other landlords who who treated them incredibly kindly and you know it was interesting when the great uh burn connor you can you can probably um talk yes. about this more, but when they were burning country houses in in ireland in the early 20th century a number you know for every house that was burnt down because they treated their staff badly there was a country house that was saved because the staff lined up outside and stopped them from burning it down is that right connor Yes, there are examples of houses where um, you have these guerrilla gangs that would go around the country burning out houses. And this is 1919, 1920, 21. And um, one such house, Castle Borough, which is a magnificent house if it was around today, the, the shell of it exists. But um, back to the poetry, there's a poem about this particular estate where when it was burnt out that a local poem was written about the tenants didn't realize they had heaven on earth until the estate had disappeared until it was gone and um, you can see from the plans and from old photographs it was beautifully laid out and uh, and all that but um, yes in Ireland there were a minority of absentee landlords, um, particularly in the west of Ireland, where you had an estate manager who learnt his uh, discipline, I, I suppose, um, abroad, and he brought back some of the poor practices which he uh, learnt abroad to the west of Ireland, and um, he didn't treat the tenants correctly, and um, uh, the evictions where on another estate where the family would have been they would have come to an arrangement and um, that on a small island where it travels fast and of course then is uh, it, it fanned the flames of the anti-country house uh, i suppose movements uh, which was formed by these these guerrilla gangs um, there was one such house uh, summer hill which is an early Georgian Palladium country house and the story was that the owner was in England on business or on a trip and the gangs this gang was coming up the long drive avenue to the house which could be seen from the front door and the butler's description was that he could see the torches the firelit torches getting closer and closer and him and a few maids, a small amount of staff in the house, exited through the back door, ran across the fields and looked back to a house in flames. And there were many such cases where um, these gangs may have turned up to a house. The family was told, you have 10 minutes to leave. They could maybe just take a few belongings, if anything, um, some sentimentals, and they sit on the front lawn and watch their house, their belongings, their home, go up in flames and uh, yes of course there are then many examples of houses where locals particularly those on the estate um, prevented it happening um, I think one such house was Castletown in Kildare where the uh, local people joined locked arms at the gate 
and wouldn't allow this guerrilla gang through. Um, but of course, many houses weren't so fortunate. Gosh. Well, thanks for bringing that point up, Jeff. I think that's really interesting. And we'll have to do a whole episode dedicated to the uh, anti-country house movement and the negative relationships that were experienced too, for balance. Um, but uh, Connor, could you give us a, an introduction? Obviously, we can't cover it all in this uh, the time that we have today, but maybe some key principles of from an architectural standpoint of the country house? I would say that for the most part, when people think of, I'd be describing now what, when people think of a country house today, when they're thinking of the house in the parkland uh, and on the estate as such, um, a country house is not uh, built and designed in isolation as an architectural piece. It is um, a marriage with the landscape and the, the planting of trees, the approach of the drive, the placement of that drive and the gate lodges um, is an important part of the architectural um, composition. And um, a house that comes to mind is Trafalgar House in Wiltshire, where the house is on a hill and upon entering the through the gate lodge, um, you get a glimpse of the house in the distance. So you, you see it for a split moment and then you disappear back into trees. It crosses the avenue again and you can see the house a lot closer this time. But once again, you descend into the trees. You're, de you're descending the hill with a slight slope, but you can't see the house. And it's not until the final approach swinging around to the house that you can see it in its full glory coming in at 45 degrees and that was all on purpose to build anticipation and um, think of it as uh, a trailer an advert for a film where they give you glimpses of the film and uh, to entice you to see the, the feature and in a way uh, an approach to a country house acts in a in a similar in a similar way um, the country house itself um, thinking of a typical Georgian uh, Palladian country house where you have a flight of steps, perhaps, maybe even three steps to um, a front door, which opens into an entrance hall, usually double height, um, of course, not always, but in a, on a grand house, which um, visiting National Trust people are familiar with, these have stately rooms, which were designed for visitors from day one. And those houses, these grand houses like, such as Chatsworth, would allow for a more private family setting and a more public uh, stately setting. Now, the smaller country houses, which are still grand, but not as, uh, as grand as Chatsworth, those which are open to the public um, now, um, the interaction between public and private is more difficult because, of course, those houses, the entire house was private home um, and with a country house the you will find that the placement of the rooms the breakfast room the saloon the drawing room the library they are laid out in such a way that you process through the house over the course of the day and depending on the activity of these rooms they'll be placed um, according to 
roughly what time of the day you might find yourself in there. So in the morning, the rising sun in the east, and of course then the library, you don't want direct sunlight, and perhaps northern light in the, in the library, a consistent light. Um, and, and then of course upstairs, the, the, the bedrooms. Um, some houses make a feature of the stairs, and some houses will put the stairs off to a, to a side, and it's not as important. But you will often see that the stairs is an architectural statement, and um, that, of course, is because in the times before the car, traveling to a house would mean an overnight or a week long or weekend stay, and so the entertainment. What the, the visitor saw did not stop on the ground floor. It ascended the stairs, and then you'd have the same amount of decoration in uh, some of the, the key bedrooms. Um, country houses are not only homes, but first and foremost, thinking prior to the 18th century, fortifications, a place where the local authority, the noble family, um, the, the feudal estate, uh, was it was a keep it was protecting itself from external forces if, if there were tribes or, or warfare but into the late 17th century when things became more peaceful they went more as status uh, symbols um, in terms of the decoration and how elaborate they were um, and from uh, through the ages, the fashions, of course, changes. And you will have a Tudor house, which will have then a Georgian face. And then maybe in the 1860s, 1880s, they put on a Gothic face. And uh, so, so a house does change as the, the taste can change. And of course, that comes with cost. And um, sometimes houses, particularly in the Victorian era, got so big that with uh, the declining income of an estate, the future uh, the descendants, the, those who inherited the estate, could not afford to keep such a large house. Um, but those of a more manageable size, uh, they weathered the storms of the 20th century better. And when I say those storms, I mean the death duties and, and all the taxation placed on the country house in the 20th century. Um, now, the, the most damning statistic, I think, of that period was in 1955, one house was demolished every five days. And this is not just a large manor house, farmhouse, this is a stately home. This is um, a grand country house of uh, significant um, interest was demolished every, every five days. And it, it's at that time that uh, people started to sit up and say, we have to do something. That is an incredible statistic. One in one house every five days. In in nineteen fifty-five, shocking. Um, well, I think that segment leads us nicely onto something before we close, which is a bit lighter of favourite country house and why. And I'll share mine first. Kettleston Hall, Derbyshire. Uh, visited there with my wife. Um, home of the great film, The Duchess. And uh, I was so, well, the whole house is a showpiece when you go in. It's, it's unbelievable, especially the marble hall, which um, was definitely the highlight for me. It, it was designed to look uh, by 
Robert Adams, I think the architect's name is, or Adam Roberts, I can't remember. Um, Robert wow. Adams. Uh, he, they wanted this. They wanted this hall to look like a, an ancient Roman atrium or reflect uh, architecture of ancient Greece. With the, they had the Corinthian toppers on the columns and these grand columns made of Derbyshire alabaster. Uh, it's sort of got this pink look to it, and it looks out onto the onto the green outside, and it was just stunning. And it really, that was one of those moments for me where I thought I've got to visit these places more often it was yeah it, it was such a, a amazing experience for me anyway that's mine what about yours jeff yeah so i mean there are so many it's hard to choose i i uh, you know i could go for one of the grand houses the likes of castle howard which featured in um in brideshead revisited or um you know hokum hall in in norfolk which is one of the great palladian houses of england with extraordinary um neoclassical or classical interiors uh, but i think for me what i've got a great great love of is sort of the 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 smaller country house but uh still substantial i suppose the sort of um uh you could say sort of pocket pocket sized stately home you might say so my favorite house is a house called chettle house in dorset uh, which is an english baroque country house uh, red brick with stone dressings that was built by thomas archer or designed by thomas archer the famous english baroque architect who designed st john smith square for those listeners who know um the the, the church now music venue in westminster uh wonderful english baroque architect um and this house what's so exquisite about chettle that i love is i love it for many reasons i love the architecture of course it's it's a very it's very grand almost ostentatious english baroque yet the house itself is is not too large. It's not on the scale of of, of Lenham or, or Castle Howard by any means. It's very much a pocket-sized country house. Um, it's got exquisite curved edges, um, which is quite unusual. It's quite baroque, but it's quite unusual. Those curved edges are actually added later. Um, Pevsner, the the great uh, sort of traveller and country house writer, described um, described Chettle House as the plumber among Dorset houses of the early eighteenth century and an even nationally outstanding as a specimen of English Baroque. And uh, what I love about Chettle, it's, 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 it, it was owned by the same family for, for, for centuries and it actually went on the market for the first time in its history or since the present house was built in 2015. Um, and I actually wrote about that sale for Country Life back in 2015. It's a house I discovered uh, when I was quite young. Uh, Candida Lysett Green, John Betjeman's uh, daughter, was a contributor to the oldie magazine she used to do a weekly column or monthly column in the oldie called unwrecked england and she described chettle the village of chettle back in the early 2000s when i was about 10 years old i read about this extraordinary village in dorset that the entire village was owned by one family uh and they ran it almost as a feudal system in the 20th 21st century um with you know offering again like i mentioned earlier offering um very good rates and rents to families who had been in situ for generations. There was a village shop, a village pub. Um, and wonderfully, that village still belongs to the family who built Chettle. They, they sold the house on a couple of hundred acres uh, in 2015, but the family is still in the village and protect it and preserve it. And, you know, I'll give an interesting fact. If you look at the most unwrecked and most beautiful counties in England we think of, the reason they're so unwrecked and so beautiful is because they're still privately owned. You know, Dorset, for example, is almost entirely owned by a handful of landowners and it's it's the only county in England without a motorway, for example. Um, 
so it's it's really interesting and and for me chattel what i love is it was restored by an architect who i'm friends with and a, an interior designer who i'm friends with uh and, and it's and it was bought by a family who i know who um who have links to the local area who are great stewards and custodians and have 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 very much the old school mindset of what it means to own a country house even though they they only bought it recently um for me chattel is is special not just for its exquisite architecture and and recently um exquisite interiors but because of its how it still plays such an important role in local village life and that's that's why i love chattel so much connor what about you well i do agree that um the, com- the countryside in general of the, the parts of the country that, that are the most beautiful and you rolling hills of uh of uh, different shades of green and, and hedgerow and uh forest and patches of woodland that is because of the country estate um if this was just small holdings you wouldn't find um the amount of forest and, and woodland that you see for say pheasant or cover for, for other game um this is all part of the estate that uh, this is land which is not being cultivated um whereas if it was a small holding of course you'd be every square inch you'd be trying to get an income from that so um the country estate is not only about the house and its direct parkland but as jeff says it's the village and it's the people um something that a lot of people miss with the country estate is that first and foremost it is the people it is the families and the family and um uh, take them away and you really do take the heart and soul out of the village out of the country house um a lot of the houses which don't have their old family in them now um that might be national trust thankfully these houses are saved and people can visit them but um without the family there if they are missing something important to them these houses are the architectural representation of that family this is that family manifest and it has changed with the family and um you'll often see that the approach um of conservation today is um where wallpaper has to be preserved at all costs um or the the most mundane thing you find in a house which will be worn and torn with family life with kids running around and um a house is to be lived in and um country house owners which uh for example uh may get a, a grant to fix the roof or repair windows uh, a caveat will come with that grant where you can no longer make full changes to the house it's not fully yours to uh to sort of change and the house may be saved and that's great if you didn't have the cash to to repair the roof but if you don't accept it then you're more free to uh keep the house going in the tradition it has been for the last few hundred years however long the family's been there and um one house in particular which some people may remember there was a channel four documentary many years ago francis fulford appeared on and uh great fulford in devon and uh he was talking about the uh the nation's interest in this house and he said the only time people came to my house previously was with cannons to try and get my family out of here talking of the civil war 
and um, he said when he was offered a grant to make some repairs, um, it was at that point he said he investigated what are the strings attached and um, he realized that he wouldn't be able to make a lot of calls on significant architectural uh, elements of the house following that. So he said he has taken no grants, but it, at least the house is fully his in the real sense of um, it continues to adapt and change with the family's needs. It's really interesting, Connor. I think it's probably also worth saying, just going back to my comment earlier about about um, the the custodian nature and, and the long term thinking, and we could do another episode on on sort of London estates. Um, but something I've noticed, having lived on two London estates, um, family owned estates, is um, again, if you walk through Marylebone, for example, which is largely owned by two estates, Portman and the Howard de Walden estates, um, two grand families. Uh, you can tell which houses are, belongs to private landlords and which ones belong to these estates because the estates believe in placemaking. You know, Grosvenor, for example, has done huge, has made huge progress in creating pedestrianised streets. You know, Cadogan's currently pedestrianising part of Sloan Avenue or Sloan Street, um, Sloan Street. Um, and uh, and what they do is they um, is they take a long term perspective. So you could, so all if you walk through through Marylebone, like I said, all the houses that are well kept with well painted front doors and railings and and stucco that's recently been re-rendered and um and you know box hedging that's not dead you'll find that more often than not those houses belong to family estates who have owned these houses since they were built and will own them until hopefully they last until posterity and actually um and actually those houses um are better maintained because the families have a long-term perspective whereas if you're a landowner if you're if you're if you own a couple of townhouses and you want to make a quick profit then you're not incentivized to invest in the same way uh, I live in Chelsea now and you walk down the King's Road and you can tell at what point the Cadogan estate ends and private landowners start because of the type of shops on the King's Road. You know, the nice shops, the shops that are placemaking, you know, that around Duke of York Square, for example, um, you have um, uh, a mix of, of high, high end and, and low end restaurants, but the facades are all well kept. Um, the planting is all alive, you know, whereas whereas you walk further down, you know, past Marks and Spencer's or whatever and 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 you see the the road gradually deteriorate in, in quality aesthetic quality as as we move away from the family estate into private landowner, landlords, uh, and it's just something to bear in mind. That, again, that long term perspective is so important uh, in the fa- in in the country estate in the sense of 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 place making and community making. Um, so that's just another thought. I, I'd love to do an episode in due course on the London estates because there is such an interesting aspect to to, to landed estates that there are still. You know, large swathes of London are still privately owned by a handful of families. And even when you go into my territory, which is all the way up north, I was recently in the village estate, family estate owned, Lord and Lady Chatburn own uh, the village of Chatburn, very small village, but they decided, one example, they put the electricity lines underground to preserve the look of the, the placemaking of the village. And it really does make a difference. It's stunning there. But our time is near ending uh briefly connor what is uh, tell us your favorite country house well i was just going to follow on from what jeff's exactly with the, the short term versus long term thinking makes such a difference in terms of of the places we find ourselves and the physical world in london when you step onto these estates within within london you will notice a great improvement to street furniture, to 
pavement uh, surface using stone and um, just yes the the environs are just um, they are built for the long term with an aesthetic consideration that um, a short term owner would not um, see the point of probably. Favorite country house, Connor? Tell us in a nutshell. Gosh, uh, well, favorite country house in terms of, I think, Trafalgar House, which I mentioned earlier, but a house I've yet to visit, which I think is one of the most important houses in the country, is Wentworth Woodhouse. Um, uh, it's a sentinel in the landscape. It's, uh, I think, the most rooms, the largest country house in the country. And um, I saw it first in Dan Cruikshanks. Uh, he had a a series called Country House Revealed. I think it was episode five. You can find it on YouTube. And it is the best episode I've ever seen on a country house. The music, the uh, film photography, the, the interviews. Uh, it's, 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 I highly recommend listeners to, to watch the Country House Revealed. Brilliant. Well, uh, I need to go to Wentworth Woodhouse myself because I'm not even that far away from it. So uh, I must go. And, well, thank you to our listeners for joining us for this first episode, which has been quite general, uh, more of an introduction overview. But we'll be diving each episode into very, very small specifics. We'll go into some episodes, we'll cover a specific house. Some episodes will cover a topic, for example, as Jeff mentioned about London estates or, you know, the maintaining and running of a country house. So uh, do stick with us and come back to us. And uh, we look forward to that. But for now, thank you very much.